Susan? Blood of Jesus. Save your life? Amen. If it hasn't, I hope that uh, you uh, have the blood applied to you before you leave the service today. Okay, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. I'm sorry this week I have no story to tell you about any more party crashing. But it wasn't as an eventful week, I guess, but it was, uh, it was still eventful. It was, it was uh, very good. Okay, I want you to look in Matthew chapter 14 as we journey through this wonderful book oh, about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Now, before we get into the passage... You know, football season is coming to an end, and as far as we know it, uh, the Super Bowl is soon to be upon us. We've had the, uh, uh, the national championship uh, with this uh, LSU, yeah, LSU team, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been a good, exciting year. It really has, and we're uh, you know, we're, we've enjoyed it. But, you know, those football teams, if you think about it, they didn't just walk out on the field, did they? And they didn't just walk out on the field with talented people or with people with different gifts and talents. They went through a season of preparation. They went through a time of preparation before that, before they, like LSU and Clemson, before they got to that final game. I mean, how many countless hours do you think that they spent watching films? How many countless hours do you think was out on the football field and that third team had to play as the opponents running the plays so that they could get acquainted with them to work towards that final game? Beating all these other teams, going through all these other crises, coming to that ultimate crisis, that ultimate game. Well, you see, Jesus is doing the same thing, isn't he? He's preparing his disciples for that ultimate crisis. What is that ultimate crisis or crisis? That ultimate crisis is the cross and the resurrection. This is what he's been preparing them for. He's uh, taking them and, and he's teaching them through parables about this. You know, the Gospel of Mark is often described as a passion narrative. And by that I mean a passion narrative that has a, it's just a long introduction, they say. Uh, it's, a, it's primarily of events leading up to the cross and the resurrection. And if you'll look at the, the Gospel of Mark, you'll see the phrase used with the word in it that's used over and over again, immediately. Immediately this happened. Immediately this. Immediately that. Because it's, it's like he's, he's just pushing this event towards that climactic event. This Gospel towards that climactic event. Well, Matthew is a lot longer book than Mark, and Luke even longer. But here in Matthew, we see that he's halfway through now. 
And he's been leading us and getting us, uh, you know, consciously headed. And the disciples, he, we, we understand that he's teaching them to be consciously aware. He's, he's, he's revealing little by little to them to get them aware of this event when it comes. Many times, uh, you know, things begin to unfold and, and things begin to be revealed to us along the way. Like in a classroom when they're teaching algebra or, or geometry or whatever. And then you gradually pick it up and then boom, all of a sudden the light comes on. Well, this is kind of like that. Little by little, the light is coming on. And Jesus has told them that, that many see, though, and do not see. Many hear and do not hear because many do not understand. But I'm telling you this, and I'm putting it in parables so that you can understand. Like the kingdom being, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven being described as a pearl uh, of great uh, value or treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom uh, being explosive and viral like uh, you know, the, uh, it's starting out small as a mustard seed and becoming large. And so in verses uh, 53 through 58, we even see him uh, revealing to them, taking them back to his home and seeing that a prophet is not even welcome in his own home. And he's letting them know, these are, this is how it's going to be. I'm telling you these parables to encourage you. The wheat and the tare, they're going to be together until the end and the judgment. But I'm also telling you that don't get discouraged. But along the way, let me show you what it's going to be like. And so he goes back to his hometown, and they don't even receive him. As John said, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So... He's being put, you know, he's preparing them. And now this event in chapter 14 of the beheading of John the Baptist, it has already happened. This is not right now it's happened. It has already happened. But Matthew has placed it there. He's putting uh, thematic thoughts throughout for a reason, putting them in the correct place as the Holy Spirit tells him to put them there. Uh, for a reason, and that is, so I'm wanting you to know. I'm letting you know that just like with John, this parallels what is going to happen to Jesus. A faithful prophet, a faithful servant of the kingdom. The disciples of, of John, they knew, they saw this with their leader. And they reported it back to Jesus. Jesus' disciples, they're gradually seeing it. They haven't probably reached the point of the impact and what is going to happen yet. But the same thing and worse is going to happen as Jesus has to suffer at, uh, leading up to the cross. So John was foretelling. He was uh, the forerunner of Jesus and the Messiah and him coming and, and him being the King of kings and the Lord of lords and, and him dying on the cross for our sins. And so we come to this passage here and we see that uh, John the Baptist is reported by Matthew. He says, at that time Herod the Tetrarch, 
heard the news about Jesus. Now, who is this? Well, there's different Herods in the Bible, but this is the, uh, the son and, uh, of Herod the Great. And he is the one, as we read the story, that had John the Baptist uh, killed, executed. He said, and, it sa- and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. In other words, he was very superstitious, I guess, and he was afraid because he knew that John was a prophet and he was afraid that he'd come back. He has risen from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, he, he had heard about Jesus and he had heard about what was going on. And so he says, oh, it's John the Baptist, he's come back. In other words, he's come back to haunt me probably. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias. Now that's very interesting because we'll look at her in just a few moments. But uh, what's so great about her? Well, she was very evil. Probably, as some of them describe, uh, another Jezebel. I mean, she was very, very evil. And so she was also the wife of who? Philip. And that meant that he, Herod should not have been married to her because that was his brother's wife. And he went to Rome and got acquainted with her and took her away and, and took her as his wife. But isn't it amazing? Matthew shows you how wrong it is because who does he say Herodias is? Philip's wife. He doesn't say Uh, Herod's wife he says Philip's wife so for when Herod had John arrested he bound him put him in prison on account of Herodias the wife of his brother Philip for John had been saying it is not lawful for you to have her now this from the Old Testament teaching of scripture now he's supposed to be uh, considered like his dad probably over the Jews the king of Jews even though he wasn't Uh, he should you know live the way that the Bible taught, but he did not. And although he wanted to put him to death, you see, John wanted to put him to death. We, we need to uh, remember this uh, as we read through the story. Uh, he said <clears throat> he feared the multitude. He didn't do it because he feared the multitude. He had a reputation, and his reputation wasn't going so good. And Rome did not like insurrections. And so uh, uh, he was in trouble before Rome already. Matter of fact, they they took him away from this later on in his life because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, this is a description of a more than just a sweet little dance. It's a sensual dance. Thereupon, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. I mean, he was uh, very um, taken by this. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Boy, now, do you think this would be a pretty uh, decent Mother's Day gift? I mean, Mother's Day sermon? How a mother used her daughter like that? But you know, mothers do, don't they? What you shouldn't do, in other words. And so... Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked, and having prompted by her, uh, been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me 
here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, now this wasn't grieved because he had to kill him. It was grieved because he knew that he was already in trouble with Rome. The king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his uh, diner, uh, dinner guest. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. Where the multitudes heard of this. They followed him on foot from the cities. Now, when Matthew is sharing about John the Baptist in these verses, we've got to remember this is the past event, first of all. This has already happened. Herod the Tetrarch had uh, heard the news about Jesus, and he thought that this was maybe John the Baptist coming back to haunt him, probably. He had risen from the dead. And so Herod Antipas uh, is the one who is in charge here. And this is a son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And Tetrarch here originally meant one of four rulers. And that's what Rome was divided in, four provinces. And so uh, the, the four uh, sons were to be put over this. Now he was not a king, nor was his father, Herod the Great, a king. Herod the Great was allowed to be given that title but it was, he was still under the emperor. And that's what a tetrarch was. He was not the king. He was kind of like a governor. And so here we have one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he was a, a, a character that really was derived from criminality, wasn't he? I mean, you think about Herod, uh, you know, Herod the uh, Antipas, uh, Antipas uh, he was uh, derived from criminality because his, his father, father, Herod the Great, did what? What did he do with the babies with, uh, during the birth of Jesus? He had, yeah, he had them all uh, killed. And so um, under the age of two, I believe. And so here we see that uh, Herod Antipas, or Antipas, excuse me, uh, was not only uh, from the line of criminality, but he himself was very corrupt. He was very corrupt. He had been involved in this sexual sin, this incest, this intrigue, sexual intrigue. And so in turn, uh, the Jews did not like him. They did not like him. And so when Herod hears about Jesus, he's fearful for himself because he's already in trouble with Rome. Now, why would John the Baptist be such an, an obsession with Herod and Herodias? Well, it was because John the Baptist was a prophet who very clearly identified their sin. Now let's look in verse 3. For when Herod and John had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod had John the Baptist arrested. He had him bound, put in prison. Why? Because of his wife. His wife hated him even more so than Herod hated him. And 
uh, she wanted to get rid of him. And she was going to scheme and connive uh, with her husband in whatever way she could to get this taken care of, to get him taken care of. And so Philip is Herod's brother who ruled over another province, and Herod wanted his wife, and so he took her, and that caused problems with the Jews, so there was an uproar there in the way that he was living and the way that he was uh, running things. And in verse 4, we're told that John had been saying to her, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so uh, the public knew what was going on. The sin was publicly confronted by John the Baptist, and they knew what was going on. And, uh, it, you know, it's not just the sexual sin, though, of Herod that's mentioned here in the context that we need to understand, but it's also the political context, as I have already mentioned, the region of his rule. It includes Galilee, which was Jewish, uh, a Jewish area. And so he is not Israel's king. They did not recognize him as that, nor his father. So the region of his rule includes Galilee, which is explicitly Jewish in area. So uh, the Jews do not receive Herod as a, a legitimate ruler. His uh, mother was not Jewish. His wife was not Jewish. And, and he does not act as a Jewish king. So it becomes abundantly clear in this passage, he is not Israel's king. They don't like him. They don't like him being over them. And besides that, he's hopelessly corrupt. Now, in verse 5 we read, And although he wanted to put John the Baptist to death, him to death, he feared the multitude because he regarded him as a prophet. In other words, the crowd regarded him as a prophet, John the Baptist. And he was afraid to put him to death because he knew that that would cause an insurrection probably with the Jewish people. And so he was in hot water and, uh, you know, he didn't want his uh, livelihood and his position taken away from him. So he just had him put in prison. He did not want to take his life at that time. Although he would like to have taken his life. He'd like to have just wiped him out. And uh, in verses 6 and 7 we read, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before him and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised with an oath, look at that, to give her whatever she asked before who? Before the dignitaries who were there. So he's between a rock and a hard place here. He really is. Uh, what we see here is a person who has made an oath and not only made an oath, a public oath to give her whatever she wanted and then on top of that, it was before the dignitaries that were there. And so he, was, you know, he couldn't uh, be put in a position where it made him look bad. So he knew that he had to stick to the oath. Jews, we know that he's not Jewish for another reason. Jews, did they celebrate birthdays? For the most part, no. They didn't celebrate birthdays. Now, there's other countries that don't celebrate birthdays, do they? They say, hey, I'm born, so why do I have to celebrate birthday? I'm here, 
I've been born. So I don't even know when, you know, they don't keep record of it. And uh, the Jews, you know, they, they didn't celebrate this. And one, one other reason that they didn't celebrate this, now they celebrated weddings and other things, is, is because of the, uh, uh, the impression that was left through these uh, birthdays that were given in a uh, heathen uh, culture and the way that they observed these. And they didn't want to associate with that also. So Jews did not celebrate birthdays. But who did? Romans did, didn't they? So the Romans, the birthday party tells us that Herod is looking like he wanted to look like a little Caesar. Not the pizza place, little Caesar. Yeah. And so we see that uh, it was a big event, kind of like New Year's Eve event. And uh, it could last for days. And we had, they had all this wine and these, uh, this food and, and uh, you know, uh, desserts, I guess. And, and uh, of course, the dancing that came in. And uh, did the Jews dance? Yeah, they danced. But they didn't do this kind of dance. This was an erotic type of dance. It was a sensual type of dance. The Jews danced by how? By like a lot of tribal dancing do. They join hands. You see this at their weddings, don't you? And they, they dance around, you know, like that. And they grab arms. And, and it's communal. But this was not that type of dancing. And not only that, here was a young girl. Can you imagine? A young girl that was between the age probably of 12 and 14. It was a niece of King Herod. And the way Matthew describes this, it's clearly erotic and incestuous. Incestuous. Herod was already scandalized by his behavior and his leadership. So Herod is here watching her and he's so moved by her dancing that he loses all senses that he might have. Probably drinking and, and he promised her what he should not have ever promised her. He shouldn't have even kept the promise, but he knew that he had to hold face before his dignitaries that were there. And so it says, Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of the dinner guest. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Herodias was a daughter of what, who? Aristobulus, another half-brother of Herod. Man, he, he's really messed up. So this made her Herod's niece, and Herodias was much like, as I mentioned earlier, Jezebel of old. Uh, you know, one of the most wicked uh, and perverse women mentioned in Scripture. And the Jews understood this. They understood who she was, and they understood what she stood for. And so Herod and Herodias were, uh, you know, uh, just incensed by uh, this prophet's uh, message. And, 
and they uh, they just and what he delivered and and how he delivered it and the audacity uh, for uh, speaking that way against them and so she wanted John's head and she did whatever she could and at the right time to do it to scheme to get this done and so Herod being caught between the rock and a hard place his public oath and and the oath being made before his friends and dignitaries risking uh, public humiliation he would not and so he had it done he was grieved because he was put in that place of having to do it because he knew what this meant. Now, as far as she was concerned, she didn't care. And, he, and what he did, too, was not lawful, was it? It was not lawful for, uh, the, uh, to be done with the uh, Jewish people. You see, the Jews were granted a capital type of punishment. And this was by stoning. And it was for religious purposes. Rome was different, though. Rome was to handle execution by, uh, or uh, of insurrection uh, by, um, for insurrection by uh, criminals who were going against Rome uh, with a method of crucifixion and uh, not by beheading. And so beheading was an ultimate act of indignity. In the Old Testament, if you'll re recall, there is beheading. There's beheading of Goliath in there. And David did this, but that was for a reason. He stood against God. And the beheading of Goliath was an act of judgment from God upon the Philistines. And so we see that he stepped out of the way. and I mean, he stepped beyond his authority and he carried this out. And so, boy, he's, he's going down that, that, uh, uh, that staircase and going down it rapidly uh, to destruction. And so uh, what Matthew uh, tells us is Herod had John the Baptist behead. This was not allowable. And this is another sign of the criminality and corruption of Herod. And this is also a fulfillment of Scripture. It said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, his own country among his own people. John the Baptist was not accepted. And this is just a foretelling of what was happening to Jesus and what ultimately would happen. What has happened to John is a sign of what will happen to Jesus. And it's because of him being, it's not because of him being misunderstood. Jesus was not misunderstood, really. It's because he has been understood. They understood that he was claiming to be the Messiah. And that's why they were out after him. Not because he was misunderstood. And so verse 11. John's head is brought on a platter. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And so it is one thing to have John executed as I already said. But it is another entirely thing to request that he be beheaded. This was Herodias' final course in her dinner, to have his head. What an awful, grotesque scene. Now, you, you think about it. What an awful way to die. And here, I mean, we just read over this, well, he was beheaded. 
I mean, think about it. Here he is beheaded. You, you talk about a horror and, and uh, horrific horror movies. Here is a head brought on a platter to a young girl between 12 and 14. And she takes his head and takes it over to her mother. Before all these people. It's a foreshadow of what will come in Jerusalem. With Jesus and also his disciples, just like John's disciples. And it says that they went and reported it to Jesus. I want to tell you, that took a lot of courage because what did they do when they took his body and, and they took it out and they went and reported this to Jesus? They were identifying with John. And they were identifying with John. And so if they were identifying with John, they were identifying with his message. And what was his message? That Herod and Herodias were living in sin. Yes, the kingdom of God was, he, uh, kingdom of God was here, but or the kingdom of heaven. But also, you must repent of your sins. Repent and be baptized. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And they were identifying with that which meant that they were putting their life on the line. Which the disciples of Jesus later had to learn, didn't they? And so we see the acceleration occurring. I mean, it's getting faster and faster. You remember me talking about uh, Matthew from chapter 13 on. Boy, you're on that, uh, that uh, toboggan, or that, uh, not toboggan, but uh, that, uh, that sled, and you're going down the, uh, the ice slopes, and boy, it's getting faster and faster and faster. And you can't get off until you have the wreck. And the crisis is going to occur in Matthew at, with the cross and the resurrection. I want to just close with a few things. First of all, being a witness for Christ means being confronted by different responses or with different responses. You may have, like the disciples, those who follow, those who accept. You may have those who are curious. It says over in the other Gospels, I believe uh, Mark talks about this, that Herod talked with John while he was in prison. He was curious. He enjoyed the intellectual talking, I guess you would say. You have some who, just like the different souls, will sit there and they will be kind of enthused over the or excited about the, uh, the stories that you tell them and the information that you give. They even might want to debate back and forth, but they don't receive. And then you'll have those who will try and punish you, those who will reject you. Those who will totally tell you, I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
and they will also become upset with you. But second of all, we need to remember that no matter what response a witness for Christ will receive, you must not compromise the truth. That is where we are today. Are we compromising the truth to say that, well, we want to be accepted by them and we, want, we don't want to be direct with them and we don't want to talk about that, uh, so that judgmental part about it because it just turns people off and we begin to compromise. You've got to be willing to be uncompromising if you're going to be a disciple of Christ and be used by the Lord. There cannot be compromise. We're not going to be the most popular kid in our culture if you're a Christian. You're not going to be the most popular person in your neighborhood, at school, wherever. If you're going to be a disciple for Christ. Yes, certain people will like you. Certain people will listen to you. But don't be surprised as you stand for the truth that they get upset with you, some people. Call you names. Do different things. And if we don't compromise, then we can and will receive different kinds of persecution at times. Somebody being very ugly to you, talking about you, running you down, somebody yelling at you, getting upset because you won't budge. And also, some people that will come and what rights you may have in a country, they'll even try to take those away to make you miserable. But we must uncompromisingly remain true to the truth, no matter what. No matter what. It's difficult, isn't it, at times? Your family, your family members, sometimes they turn against you. Jesus in his own hometown, what happened there? You know what's really difficult? is when Christians, as we talked about Wednesday night, the different classification of Christians, uh, fleshly or carnal Christian, as some people say, the spiritual Christian, and then you have the natural person. But the natural person, you would expect it because they're blinded to the truth. And they 
don't want to hear it. And when you reveal sin, they will get upset because they don't want their little cart shaken. But Christians, you'd say, that are in the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will attack you because you stand up for the truth? Who won't have anything to do with you? Who will be mean to you? You say, why? I'm just trying to be faithful to God and obedient to Him. And the reason is, is that more than likely, more times than not, they're not in fellowship with God. They're not walking with the Lord. You say, why are they talking about me? Why are they running me down? You know, I, Debbie was reading to me about a preacher in Arizona, was it, Danny? Texas, somewhere out there. Yeah. He was asked to leave a church because he put on the sign, y'all read that, some of you, about homosexuality and also about, I think, transgender or whatever or and he was just making a point in the in the sense of we need to stand up for the truth and not give in to public opinion and do you know the church put pressure on him and they threatened the elder and elders and some others uh, in there not all of them threatened to leave and so he just stepped down because he didn't want to cause division. Whoa. What is that church made up of? What will that church be made up of? We've got to stand for the truth. That is a crying shame, isn't it? When we get to that point in our culture, in our society, where we think we have to be politically correct on everything to the point where we compromise being truthful and standing up for the truth. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray that